Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the Practical Voice Podcast. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you are generally passionate about voice, or if you've been working in this industry for a while and you know your stuff, then you'll know that voice is more than smart speakers. Voice is an interface and it's cropping up in all kinds of different devices from headphones to watches to mobile phones to clocks and microwaves and washing machines and of course the web now if you want to bring voice to the web if you want to bring voice to your website or your client's website then speebly will help you do that in the same way as you get the little chatbot icons that are in the bottom right hand corners of websites that open up a text-based chatbot the speebly widget is that but with voice capability it's essentially a voice assistant embedded on your website depending on the conversation and how the conversation goes it can take you to different pages on your website and actually navigate a user through your website based on the conversation or if you're using Dialogflow for your Google Assistant actions or Amazon Alexa skills then you can point Dialogflow at Speebly and access that skill or action through Speebly which means that essentially you'll have your skill or your action available to be interacted with via a website. Plenty of you are working with clients, helping them build conversational experiences, and Speebly have an offer for VUX World listeners where if you include Speebly as part of your client work, as part of a project that you're working on with a client, and your client then uses the Speebly Speebly widget on their website, Speebly will give you, the developer or the designer or the company who has created the widget, uh, they will give you a kickback every single month. It's good for the client because they get to show that they're innovative, they get to have voice as part of their website, they get to have something that is more engaging than clicking through pages. It's good for the user because they have that different interaction and they have an assistant that can help them navigate through the website and it's good for you because you get paid. Um, It's a fantastic tool. Check it out. Go to speebly.com slash V-U-X to find out more. That's speebly, S-P-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash V-U-X. On today's episode of VUX World, we are getting deep into how to localize and internationalize Alexa skills. We've touched on localization in the past. We did a VUI design localization episode with Micah Defua. We've looked deep into the Jargon tool with Jargon. Today, We're looking specifically at Alexa skill localization. We're going to go through the how to take a skill from a language into another language. We're going to be talking about cultural considerations, design considerations, front end considerations, back end considerations, and walk you through the entire process, as well as the challenges and the gotchas and the benefits and reasons why you should do it. Now, to take us through it, and there's a rhyme, (laughs) To take us through it, we are speaking to Alexa evangelists Andrea Mutoni and Herman Viscuso. Andrea is a senior solutions architect and a technical evangelist for Alexa UK and Ireland. And Herman is the technical evangelist for Alexa Spain. Now, the background with these guys is unbelievable. Herman is from Argentina, living in Spain, has a German passport and... I think is it German is it a German passport? I think it is. And Andrea has been brought up in about six different countries from China to, you know, America to Luxembourg to all over the world. These guys are I don't think there's people who are in a better position to discuss localization and translating or transcreating of your Alexa skills. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andrea Mutoni and Herman Viscuso on VUX World. Yes. 
Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the podcast today. Dustin, how are you feeling today? Feeling pretty good. How are you, Ken? Feeling pretty good. It's I'm I'm a little bit not under the weather in terms of my mental state or my health, but I'm under the weather in terms of my physical location because there is a huge grey cloud outside that has been raining on me all day. But my day is about to be brightened up and yours is as well. Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Andrea Mutoni and Herman Viscuso of Amazon Alexa. Andrea, Herman, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure to have you along uh, for the journey today. We've got um, a lot to talk about, localization. We've covered localization a couple of times on the podcast, but we've never really made it Amazon Alexa specific. And of everyone at Amazon Alexa, of the 10,000 people, I think it was reported that were working at Amazon Alexa, you guys are the localization kings. Are we right? Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think you must be something like that because Andrea, I was looking at your LinkedIn and you've grew up in Italy, France, the UK, the USA, China, and Luxembourg. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've, I've had a bit of a peculiar upbringing. Uh, my father, uh, he kind of brought us around as a family when we were growing up, uh, and uh, we kind of just. I especially went to the local schools wherever I went, especially, uh, except for China, uh, where it was a bit hard to go in high school, you know, in Chinese. Uh, so <laughs> I went to the international school there, but uh, it, it helped me adapt to the culture quite well and definitely contributed to me being a fan of localization for sure. <laughs> Andrea is a typical expat. <laughs> I also have like a kind of a... Uh, weird background because I was born in Argentina and I, I moved to Spain. I live in Madrid right now and I have an, an Italian passport. So it's kind of a mix. And I always work for a foreign company. So yeah, it's globalization, you know. This is globalization. I can't, and Dustin is from USA. He's living in Paris. I think I'm the only one over here who, who's just boring, I think. Just born and raised. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just I'm just boring. I've got no story like this. I mean, you guys are literally not only in terms of your work at Amazon and in, in the Alexa team evangelizing for localization, but in terms of your background and your experience, you actually are in the perfect position to be the ones advising on this. But but you know what, uh, Kane, it's actually a double-edged sword because I grew up so I'm Italian born. And speaking of passports, I have a German passport for some reason, um, and I've never lived in Germany. But uh, I'm Italian-born, and I grew up in the States, so I picked up this American accent. And when I go to Italy, people ask me where I'm from. And when I go to the U.S., people ask me where I'm from because they can't place my accents in either language anywhere. So I basically feel like I'm part of no country, or optimistically, uh, part of all countries. Well, there you go. Yeah, just just like I told you, like the typical expat, you know, nobody knows where, where you are from. 
<laughs> Classic. So let's let's kind of back up a little bit then, and we'll 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 kind of discuss a little bit of, of your kind of backgrounds and stuff to give to give the users context. As if they need more context, you've both kind of lived all over the world and and hold passports for all kinds of different countries. But we'll start with you, Herman. Tell us a little bit about your background and and your experience to date, and, and some of the stuff that that you're doing with uh, with Amazon Alexa. Yeah. Well, uh, I started when I was really young, like uh, around uh, eight years old, and I started playing with a what's a language called logo probably all people uh, heard about it right <laughs> so it was like a small turtle and you basically learn programming right with that and i got hooked immediately you know with with computers and then i started you know kept playing with it for a long time then decided to go to university and i have my master's degree in computer systems and when i finished i started working for let's say boring companies like you know insurance banking etc and i said no this is not not the way to go this is not what I like. So I, st- I started to work for startups. I, I find the, the opportunities to start working for, for startups. And recently I joined Amazon, you know, and one of the things that I like about Amazon is that even though it's a really, really huge company with tons of, uh, tons of employees, uh, when you work for a specific team or a specific organization, it kind of feels like a startup, you know? So that's what I really like about Alexa, you know, if you compare us with, with AWS, for example, AWS is a huge organization within Amazon, right? Alexa size a little bit smaller but it's super interesting so i'm really glad that that i joined uh, amazon and uh, alexa is is super interesting because i also have a background in uh, mobile uh, development i used to do android development and i was getting really tired about graphical user interfaces basically when i when i had to do a mobile application i dreaded the part where i had to do the the gui you know so uh, that's why i decided to jump to join boys. Uh, this has been very exciting. There's no GUI, except if you start using, you know, APL, which is the our Alexa presentation language to kind of deal with the GUI. But mostly the interaction is voice first, right? So you, you focus on voice and that's, and that's what you have to deal with. And that's what I'm really interested about, you know, how a, a, a user interface has to be peculiar because it's based on voice. And there's there are no graphical cues, you know. So that's super interesting to me. That's why I joined Amazon. And as a technical evangelist at Amazon, what what is your kind of role? What is it that you do then with Alexa on a daily basis? Um, I I recently tweeted about it. Uh, I I heard uh, Ian Massingham, which is a, a huge uh, you know evangelist in the AWS organization. He basically said that. The, the main task of, uh, of an evangelist is uh, about uh, efficient knowledge transfer, you know? So our task is to make sure that what we know and, and what we study and what we develop, right, uh, gets transfer, transferred into people's brains effectively, right? So we are always looking for, for ways to actually achieve that. And that's our main, main task, our main goals. We have many tools. We have many ways of doing that. We have workshops. We have videos. Actually, Andrea created a series of videos of building your first Alexa skills from scratch that are super successful. But there are many ways in, in which you can do that, right? And our ultimate goal is to make sure that people understand and people feel comfortable developing skills andrea what about yourself then what how did you how did all of your kind of traveling from the usa to china to luxembourg how did voice come into all of this and what got you into to voice uh so taking the long uh route like like herman did everything started with the c plus plus for dummies book uh back when i was yeah more or less like nine or ten which i promptly 
got bored with and just never looked mm-hmm. again at uh, because C++ was way over my head, especially for a young kid. Uh, and the rest of my, uh, let's say, upbringing was more on the economic side, although I always had a sort of a passion for building things. So I, I would say my biggest passion is not necessarily to code, but it's to build things and to create things that haven't existed before. Uh, so I, I would always code on the side and uh, have both a UI and as well as a UX, as well as a coding, sort of hacking things together, not because I like to code, but because I like to bring things to life. And uh, I started in Amazon actually on the business side. Uh, so I was finishing my master's in economics and I had to do an internship somewhere. So I, I applied to Amazon and uh, I quickly got bored of Excel and I quickly got bored of emails or solely working on Excel and email. And so I was looking for ways to to sort of combine the coding part and the creative part with, you know, Amazon, which was a great company. Uh, and I found that they had an opening for a technical evangelist, which I, I, I had already known about technical evangelists because I, I very much follow very closely the whole tech scene. And I was like, wow, this type of role exists in Amazon. Wow, okay, I'm gonna try and apply for this. So I applied and uh, this goes a long way to show you know, what sort of company Amazon is, but I had nothing on paper to prove that I would be a good evangelist, but they were willing to take a shot with me. And uh, in the end, you know, everyone's happy so far. And uh, yeah, I kind of was able to try this new thing. And uh, so far I was, I've, it's, been re- it's been really good. So I would say the biggest fascination with voice, kind of what like Herman said is not having to worry so much about the implementation details because building a good skill is quite technically simple. But the challenge is building a good experience, a natural experience. And that's where you don't need to have technical chops in order to do it well. You need to actually sit back and think, okay, how would a human say this? How would a human interact with this? Uh, How would a human respond to a specific question? And how do we make it simple? And how do we work around all the technological constraints that are inherent to something that is just started, right? So like the whole voice assistance uh, industry is relatively new and we're still figuring things out as we go and we're still launching tons of new features as we go. Uh, And we, as the creators and as the, let's say the uh, people in charge of inspiring other creators, we kind of have to find ways of working around the current constraints, knowing that these constraints may completely evaporate in the future as new features get released. So I would say uh, it's just an exciting place to be in and the, the job is super fun. Uh, you get to meet a lot of new people. You get to do stuff like this, like this podcast, which I'm sure if I was still on the business side uh, trying to you know, get books on Kindle, I'm sure, Kane, you wouldn't have invited me to this podcast. So um, <laughs> overall, I'd say um, it's, it's been a great ride so far. Wicked. Well, it might be an interactive audio book, mightn't it? Might have, might have happened. Yeah, but you wouldn't have known me, right? True, true, true. You would actually, have just true. been, oh, cool, there's this book that I wanted on Kindle, on Kindle. Great. Oh, that's that's true. <laughs> we actually met, I think the first time we met was last year, wasn't it? At the I think seeing a car hen put the event on at Imperial College London. Right. And you were given the kind of keynote there. I think that was the first time we sort of uh, met each other. 
Um, yeah, it was, it was a good good kind of event. That. Dustin, I don't think we've got into how you got into development. What's your what's your kind of if you could take it back far enough? What what kind <laughs> of what kind of got you into it then? Oh man, it's uh, it's a little embarrassing. I made websites. Uh, you can't see, but I'm uh, finger recording here. Websites about the NBA <laughs> and PowerPoint uh, when I was eight nine years old. Uh, moved on to to free websites about baseball and things like that. I think I had one about yo-yos at one point. Uh, studied government in, in college. Uh, interned on Capitol Hill for a little bit. Realized definitively that that was not for me. Uh, and then bounced around a little bit uh, until I got into the programming game and, and realized it's really, really where I should have been all along. So I think, uh, you know, similar kind of stories as we're hearing here, uh, but it maybe took me a little bit longer. And, and now that I'm here, it's, I'm holding, holding on tight. <laughs> Classic. Andrea, you mentioned there that, that one of the things that excites you most about voice and about Amazon Alexa is that it's not just about building something. It's about actually creating an experience. And, you know, we're going to talk about localization today and, and internationalizing skills. Is that something that makes that process a challenge or, or or harder if you need to create an experience in a different language absolutely absolutely so um you know when you build an app you have your interface which is let's say the the structure and then you have the text which is just a clarification of that structure or it's just almost an embellishment because if you use symbols effectively, then you can kind of create an app without even writing a single word. Uh, obviously there, there are exceptions, but you get what I mean, right? Uh, with voice, the whole experience is based on what you write or what you uh, want the assistant to say or what you record a voice actor to say back. And so when you're trying to localize or adapt one experience in one language, you're not just considering the text that has been written for that language, but you're considering the whole backdrop of culture and, uh, you know, inside knowledge of that culture and uh, just style and tone and context of that culture. Because uh, the way I see a language is it's a result of, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of a single culture, a specific word in one language even if it's translated one-to-one to, -one to, to another language, has a slightly different emotional feeling. And I know this because I'm bilingual in Italian and English, and it's very hard to convey very specific words from one language to the other because uh, the same word that has the same meaning on the dictionary in another language has a slightly different connotation. So when you're trying to localize these experiences, it's not just a matter of translating, it's a matter of adapting. So transcreation, adapting a message from one language to another, but trying to maintain its intent, style, tone, and context. That's where it's really, uh, th that's where it's really challenging. Um, so not only that, but that's only assuming that you have you know, a one-to-one -one map of every word of every language to every other word in every other language. Uh, unfortunately, languages don't work that way. So sometimes we have to think of uh, explanations in one language to define one word that sums up that concept perfectly in that particular language, right? Uh, and so you have to deal with the fact that languages don't map one-to-one. -one. 
that if you use cultural references in one language uh, or you use, you know, common interjections or, or uh, uh, phrases that are uh, a, a common way of expressing, uh, you know, like uh, break a leg. If you translate break a leg, literally, you're going to offend a lot of people in a lot of different <laughs> languages. Uh, so trying to maintain that consistency while keeping the same style and tone, that's where the real challenge is in trying to localize an experience that's inherently based on uh, the human connection that is done through language. Yep, I, I would have to agree with that. The First of all, the, the interesting aspect here is that there's this blur, blur between the, the content and the structure, right? When it comes to, you know, a voice, a voice interface. And so you have to kind of create an experience that combines both, combines what you want to say, plus a structure that is, let's say, comfortable for the user in terms of voice, right? And then when it comes to cultural differences, this is this is a huge, uh, when it comes to cultural differences, this is a huge uh, point here that uh, Andrea is making. He said, for example, suppose that there are ways to, to say hi or to say goodbye uh, in a language that are perfect, perfectly fine, right? That maybe are considered impolite or like too informal in some other culture, some other languages, right? So when you go to a direct one-to-one -one translation, you run into into those issues and if you prepare your voice interaction model to understand a set of uh, let's say utterances or phrases that's how we call them right uh, maybe uh, you you got them right for english for example because you know that people tend to ask those questions in that way with that structure and when you translate them maybe and you put that experience into i don't know a japanese uh, skill for example the people in japan maybe they don't ask the for that in that way, right? In, in, in those ways. So you run into, into this uh, very, very difficult issues where you cannot do a one-to-one -one translation. You definitely need to take a look at the culture and how they talk, etc. So uh, if you are, for example, if you have a great skills uh, built in English, right? Or bit for the US, for example, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't mean that you can just go ahead and translate them and put them in Japan, for example. It's, it's going to be very, very challenging. So you have to know what you're doing, right? It's, it's not, not that easy. So having said that, I don't want to discourage people to actually localize skills. You know, we, we, we've been doing this for a while. There are multiple ways in, in which you can do it, but that's something you definitely have to, to have, have in mind. Do you ever have a situation where, let's say, the the same request, so to speak, a translator request might go to different functionality or maybe even in different locales, functionality just doesn't make sense from one to the other? What I'm thinking about here, for example, is uh, languages where the same word means hello and goodbye. Uh, are there situations where you need to account for those types of things and change up what that functionality is? Well, fortunately, when you are working with Alexa skills, for example, um, we, we work with what, what we call intents, right, at a high level. Basically, it's something that the user wants to do, right? Some, some Or you can consider it, consider it like a functionality within the skill, right? Uh, and a specific functionality. And when you're creating these utterances or these phrases, you have to make sure that they do not overlap. Basically, you do not want to have the same utterances uh, in different intents because the system would not know, you know, what where to go, right, or what to do. So 
those problems are probably going to become apparent once you do a, this translation into the, these other languages. Suppose that you do this translation into this other language where hello and goodbye are maybe said in, in the same way, just suppose that hypothetically, right? Uh, you would see that those two utterances are the same and they are on different intents, right? So you would immediately catch that ki those kinds of mistakes, right? But you have to check for that, you know what I'm saying? Basically, after going through a localization, maybe changing phrases, changing utterances, etc., you have to, to make sure that you do not have inconsistencies that arise after the localization process or the translation process. And we'll, we'll get further into some of the detail in terms of, you know, how to go about doing all this stuff and, and some of the kind of processes that you use and that you're kind of evangelizing about at, at Amazon Alexa. But... If we just back up for a second and kind of for, for those people listening, lots of people listening to this podcast who've created Alexa skills, lots of people who are in the process of creating Alexa skills. I'm just looking on, this is this is just on Wikipedia and it's saying as of November 2018, the Echo is available in 40 countries. Now, if that isn't enough to inspire people to, to start thinking about localizing their, their Alexa skills, what would you say is the, is the reasons why people should seriously be considering or, or not even considering, but going through the process of localizing their skills? Why? why? So um, currently the way the Alexa skills kit and the Alexa skills store works is that when you build a skill, you have to build it in one language, right? So whether it be British English or US English or uh, German or Japanese, you build it in one language and you publish it to that specific uh, store. So that alone should prompt people to say, hey, wait, if I build it in UK English, then how do I not get access to the US English store? Or uh, I want to build it in UK English, but I also want Germany to be able to use my skill. Therefore, you need to be able to localize it. And this, 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 uh, this factor of trying to access all of these new languages is just going to keep increasing as Alexa launches in more and more languages in more and more countries. Um, the easiest way to, to let's say, capture, uh, currently, the easiest way to capture most markets is to write it in English as if you're trying to account for all English-speaking locales, right? So for US, UK, uh, India in English, uh, uh, and, and then Australia, and then uh, make an interaction model. So build your skill, trying to account for all of these cultural differences, because if someone is in the UK, they're probably going to ask for something in a slightly different way than someone in the US or someone in Australia. Try and build a robust interaction model that accounts for everything, and then you know use it, use the same one throughout all of these different languages. However, going from that to a completely different language. So let's say going from English, generic English to German, that requires a complete rehaul of what, of what you've done because everything is different, right? Um, it's not like a UI where you just have to change the strings. You have to change the whole back and forth conversation. To, to, to your question, which is why should people localize their skills? I would say short answer is you can untap different countries and different users all over the world by, by doing it. And you can only do that by localizing your skills. 
that's the number one reason and is there um let's say for example if i go into the alexa skills kit uh in the console at the moment and i create a skill and i go to publish it in english in england and in english in america is there I don't know quite because I've never done this particular thing, but is there anything preventing me from from submitting an English language skill to Germany, or or does it need to be a German speaking skill? Yeah, well, basically, uh, when you when you create the skill, right, you can define uh, the scope for the distribution of the skill. So basically, you can limit it to specific countries, or you can say go worldwide, right? Now, suppose that you created your skill only for uh, English US, right? And that's it. And you selected distribute worldwide. That skill is going to be available anywhere where the device uh, is uh, supporting English uh, from the US, okay? That device is maybe somewhere else right not in the u.s but basically it will be you will be able to run that skill or use that skill in that device so when you go global uh, nothing prevents you from you know going global but you have uh, you have to understand that your selection of languages are the ones that you do support are going to limit the distribution of that skill okay so that's uh, what i think it's uh, really important to understand now some people have country restrictions because they are creating a skill that is super local suppose that it's a skill for the the train service in spain right why would i want want it to be available somewhere else basically people are using trains here and, and they are going to use it here right so i can maybe limit the distribution uh, to spain uh, so uh, that skill doesn't show up on other uh, spanish enabled devices right that are somewhere else in the world I also think Kane was asking um, if it's possible to just copy and paste the English skill, put it into the German language, and try to publish it as is. Right, Kane? Yeah. 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 So obviously that 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 would be a terrible experience. Yes, that would be a terrible <laughs> experience. And your question was technically, is it possible? And so technically, you can get as far as the certification process, uh, because the certification process will ensure that. Uh, the skill meets certain standards, and standard number one is it's in the it's in the language that it says it is. Uh, so uh, I think in development it would be a nice fun, a, a nice fun experiment because the way that Alexa works, right, uh, is if you write a foreign word in that language. So for example, if I were to write "Hello, how are you?" in the Italian language then Alexa, using Italian phonetics and Italian ways of speaking, will try to interpret that phrase and coincidentally will sound like an Italian's trying to speak English. Yeah. Uh, so it will be a, a, a fun experiment, but it won't be uh, very successful in the certification process. Ah, right. So, the, so if I have an English-speaking skill and I put an Italian phrase in there, then it will be read back by Alexa, the English Alexa trying to speak Italian. Exactly. So presumably, the, right? So there's different kind of versions, if you like, of Alexa that are tuned for different locales. And it's actually yes. very funny, you know, to, to hear that. If you ever try it, it's very, very funny. And we, we have, uh, let's say, 
Alexa voices for each locale, right? So if you t if you hear, for example, Alexa speaking English from from Britain, it will sound completely different to the Alexa in the in the US, right? So we have different voices, definitely. But one thing that I wanted to clarify here is that there are there are two different things here. One thing is the the output of the skill. So basically, what the skill says, right? And that that you obviously need to localize. And, and a different thing is what the skill basically understands, right? Which is the, the voice interaction model. And when you create these this phrases, these utterances, it's basically you are defining what the skills needs, needs to understand, right? So uh, sometimes you start uh, by localizing the, we call it the front end, the voice interaction model, okay? There are two parts of the skill, the front end and the back end. The front end is basically uh, what uh, the skill needs, uh, what, what the skill needs to understand when the user speaks, okay? So you start by localizing the front end, and maybe you do a great work at localizing the front end, but then when that skill hits the back end, all the responses are being sent, for example, in English. Suppose it's a hello world that was created in English. Those responses are sent in English. And then you have your, let's say, uh, Spanish-speaking Alexa trying to speak in English, you know, those, those words. So localization is not only about localizing the voice interaction model, but it's about localizing the voice interaction model and the back end, these two parts, okay? Usually when you create the front end, if you are, for example, working here in Spain, you just choose the language that you want to work with when you create this front-end voice interaction model. So if I'm here in Spain, I just select Spanish from Spain, okay? We also have Spanish from Mexico to give you an idea. Uh, but if I want to create uh, these uh, different versions for, for, for different languages uh, in this front-end, I have to explicitly create uh, voice interaction models for each uh, locale. Okay, so if I want a skill to be able to work in, in Spain and in, in the US, for example, in English, I will have to create two voice interaction models, one for Spain and another one for English US. And those will coexist, right? And if I, for example, update the voice interaction model for Spain, then the, the English model gets outdated. Basically, I need to also go to the you know, uh, voice interaction model for English US and update it. Right in the same way, with the backend things are a little bit different because when we localize it, what we do is uh, use a single backend. Right, we are not using multiple backends to support multiple languages. We use a single backend, and we detect the locale that comes from the device. So when the device sends a request to the backend, it's always sending this uh, piece of information that is specifying the locale of the device. So it's telling me if it's English US or if it's, for example, uh, Spanish from Spain. In the backend, we detect this locale, and based on that, we select the specific strings that we want to output. So in the backend, we need these different strings. We need strings in English, we need strings in, in Spanish, right? And depending on that locale, we select those and we send them out, right? So that's a way in which we achieve that the backend doesn't speak in English to a, to a Spanish device, for example. Are there any advantages to uh, essentially localizing the same skill versus having uh, discrete skills for each locale so the advantage uh, so it's i would say it's a matter of choice uh, the advantage of keeping everything under one backend is that you update the code logic once and uh, as long as your strings are managed in a way that they can be picked regardless of locale you can just focus on the code logic in your in your back end and once you update it once it works for all languages right if you duplicate your your function or your back end for each language then anytime you want to make a change 
you also have to propagate it to every other language. Uh, and it also makes it easier to accidentally sort of deviate into different branches as you try to accommodate each different culture or each different language because you want to add maybe an interaction here, an interaction there. Um, so I would say the biggest benefit of having a single backend that manages locales uh, automatically is that you can just focus on the code once and then you can just focus on the strings uh, without any, let's say, redundancy. There's also uh, an interesting uh, thing to consider uh, when it comes to uh, the the advantages of, of creating separate skills versus creating one skill with multiple locales. Uh, so let me give you an example. Suppose that you create a skill called catfax, right? And you create catfax for the US and you create the separate skill called catfax in Spanish for, for, for Spain, right? So you have two separate skills. You're not creating one with uh, multiple locales, but you, you are creating two separate skills. Uh, one thing that usually happens is that when you sub when you submit a skill for publication, you need to pass a certification process, right? So Amazon checks the, the skills to make sure they comply with all our guidelines. And when you do that for a skill that supports multiple locales, basically all the locales have to be checked and all the locales have to be okay in terms of guidelines for the skill to be published. So when you submit a multi-local skill, they usually tend to take a longer time uh, to pass the certification because you have multiple checks there, right? Well, if you have separate skills, uh, the certification process basically checks uh, one local, the one for each skill, right? So maybe if you know that uh, you're going to run into, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of these uh, tedious checks for a skill that has multiple locals, maybe it is worse to have separate ones, but you run into the issues that Andrea mentioned, right? Uh, of, of keeping everything up to date and synchronized. And just to clarify for those those listening, in terms of those who might not be developers, when you say a front end and back end, are you talking about the front end being your kind of intents and your slot values, and your back end being your kind of lambda functions? Yeah, I I think I can clarify that. So uh, let's suppose that you start interacting with a with a skill, right? You talk you talk to Alexa and you say, you know, Alexa, open cat facts, right? So basically, uh, when you start talking to the skill, you can say, give me a fact, right? This is a very very simple example. So basically, that's an utterance, right? You're saying you're saying, give me a fact, okay? Um, there's a model that is trying to understand what you say, okay? So you can say, give me a fact, you can say, I want a pizza, you can say whatever, right? Some of those uh, phrases or utterances are going to be, let's say, supported by your model. Basically, your model will understand some of them. There are a lot of them that will not, the model will not understand, okay? So that part is called the front end. We call it the voice interaction model. So it defines the understanding of the skill, okay? Now, that model uh, acts like a kind of, like a filter, because that model is trying to make a, uh, uh, try, trying to understand what you really want to do based on those uh, phrases, right? There are multiple ways in, in which you can say uh, I, that you want to hear a fact. You can say, I want a fact, I, I want to hear, uh, you know, a specific uh, piece of data, you know, multiple ways in, in which the user might say the same thing. But basically, the model, the model simplifies this process by basically the, uh, matching that into an intent. So the intent is what the user really wants to do. 
when we hit the back end, which is the part that actually is going to process, you know, that output from the front end, when we hit the back end, we don't want to basically overwhelm the developer in the back end with the with the whole variations of what the user is saying, you know, with whole phrases, you know, etc. Uh, so what we want to basically do is tell the back end the user wants to do X, right? So that's an intent. It's very specific. In the back end, that's what you get, right? And then in the back end, you decide what the skill needs to say back to the user. So it's, it's more about the output of the skill, what the user is, ends up doing, what kind of data the skill has to retrieve, you know, to give an answer back to the user. So those are the difference between front end and back end. I, I hope that makes it clear. I don't know if, if you have more questions, just just ask. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think that makes it clear. So the front end is essentially all of your utterances and all of your sample dialogue phrases and all of that kind of stuff. And then the back end is kind of amalgamating those into one intent which is check the weather in this location and then the back end is all of the handling of that and producing the response back is that is that right that's correct yeah okay so we've kind of touched on this in parts here and there but i'm wondering whether we can kind of go through someone has a, an alexa skill it's in english us or french or whatever the language is What's the process that you would advise them to go through to turn that skill into another language, into changing one skill from one language into kind of localizing it for another locale? What's the what's the kind of process you'd recommend they go through? I would point them to Andrea's blog about localization. <laughs> uh, Andrea, and, to... and, and given that the author uh, is speaking right now, maybe I can uh, <laughs> I can summarize it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, okay, so let's say you've built a skill and you haven't thought about localization at all, right? So you've hard-coded all of your strings and your code logic and uh, you've just built it in one language. So the, the steps are, I would say, um, three, three broad steps. The first one is to rewrite your front end, your interaction model, into the target language, right? So if we're going from, for example, French to German or English to French or whatever, you have to re-adapt all of the phrases that you expect a user to say into that target language. And with things like, you know, going from French to German, the whole sentence structure may change, uh, even potentially slot types and values may change as well because, for example, dates are expressed in a, in a specific way in one language versus uh, versus another. So you just have to understand how to port the experience, the, the front-end experience, so how users express themselves from one language to the other. And that practically just entails translating the interaction model. But it's not just translating, right? Because as we said, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's um, it's 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 more than translating it's trans creation so trying to keep the same feel tone context culture uh but in the new target language so uh that's why it's not just a matter of translation but it's just a matter it's a matter of readaptation into that target language and some languages may have different tones so maybe a German audience expects a more formal tone. Uh, hopefully, I'm not stereotyping. Uh, or you know, a UK audience expects a slightly more formal tone than a US audience. Uh, and that's just based on 
on your personal judgment and based on how well you know the target audience. So let's say you you translate your front end, so you know what users will say. Your your, your skill is trained to recognize the phrases that you expect users to say in that target language. The intents stay the same. So the actual connection points between what users say and what your skill does are intense, remain intact. But the skill backend also has to respond in that target language, right? So uh, even, even though it's funny to have, to have Alexa uh, speak a different language in, in a bad accent, it's better to, 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 to speak to the user back in the, right, in the right language. And to do that, we have to sort of extrapolate the text and the strings from our code and divide it in, these are our language assets. So these are what our, our skill says and we put them to one side. And this is what our skill does. So for example, connect to an API or uh, retrieve information from a database or uh, perform some calculations. And you separate these two things and you manage them separately. Now there's various ways of managing uh, the code. We were talking earlier about having a single function or a single backend that, that executes the code and just pulls the different languages based on what type of request is coming in. That's one design decision. The other, the other design decision is to have multiple backends for each language and they are in, intrinsically tied to a specific language, right? Uh, that's just a design choice. Uh, I would tend to prefer having one single backend that can adapt to, to various languages so that you only update the code once. So let's assume the code part for the moment is taken care of and you've somehow, you know, uh, in, instead of hard coding the strings in your responses, you're using variables to reference a specific string. Now comes the, uh, the issue of having to manage different languages. So now you have a single skill backend, but you have two languages and maybe three or four or five. How do you manage this? So there's a couple of ways to do this. Uh, you can do it by hand. So you can write your, you know, there's, we have this thing called interceptors in the new SDK where any request that comes in can be pre-processed somehow. And you can check what the incoming locale is and pick the right language strings from that uh, from your language assets, and then uh, and then you know use that in your skill. So you using an interceptor and writing it on your own. Uh, we we have in in the blog post how to localize your your Lexa skill, uh, and we have a lot of uh, sample code on GitHub.com/Alexa on how to do this yourself. Uh, but there's also some interesting alternatives. So for example, uh, Jargon, they, they are writing an SDK that's open source and they also sort of abstract away the need to micromanage your language assets. So you, as, so for those of you who are developers, you, you wrap your Alexa skill builder object around the Jargon SDK and they implicitly take care of the language uh, and you just have to follow their way of writing uh, speech output and their way of formatting your, your your strings into a separate file, and they take care of the rest. And they make it easy to pluralize. They make it easy to, uh, you know, take care of multiple versions. Um, yeah, but the the common theme here, uh, the, uh, when you use uh, Jargon or INTNX, whatever tool you use in the backend, the common thing here is that your you have string resources, right? And those string resources have a particular form, which is key and value, right? Mm 
So the value has the actual uh, string in the specific language, right? While the key is the same for all languages. So suppose that I have a welcome message, right? Uh, I, I have string resources where welcome equals hello for English, and then I have, you know, uh, Spanish uh, re uh, resources where welcome, which is exactly the same key, I use English in the key, right? But equals to hola, right? So, and that's a different value within that key. So all these tools, IETNX, Jargon, etc., makes it, make, uh, makes it uh, really easy to actually uh, transparently pick the strings depending on the locale. So when I'm working with the backend, I would basically say, hey, Alexa, you need to speak welcome using the welcome key, okay? So uh, the system will just go and fetch the specific value for that key taking uh, into account the locale. It will pick hello if it's an, an, uh, an English request, or it will pick hola if it's a request in Spanish, okay, or from Spanish device. So that's the basic log logic behind it. Just This is just a clarification, essentially, and then um, I'll jump in. Just to let me kind of summarize this and, and just clarify this in my mind to see if I've got it right. So <clears throat> the first thing you would do is you would take all of your utterances and your uh, the spoken words by the user all of those things that you've got that that you would expect the user to say you would translate those first so let's say I've got all of those in my left hand and I translate everything in my left hand which is everything that the user is going to say and then the code which is sitting on my lap is the stuff that's handling all of the logic and responses so what I want to do is I want to go through that logic find out all of the points where my response where my responses are take those from the code which is on my lap and put them all into my right hand and translate all of those and then the options are that does it, before i move on does that is that right yes yes uh, it, it is it is correct the the thing is that uh, you, you, you don't hold all the uh, language resources on the same place because when you translate the voice interaction model, that model is going to be in the front end, right? And the strings that you're translating in the back end, they will have to be accessible from the back end. So they are in a different, in a different place, okay? But basically you got it right, right? That's, that's the process, yes. Okay, so and then what happens is one of the ways in which you can do it is that let's say that I've got my English uh, utterances and my translated utterances now let's say German in my left hand the logic sitting on my lap and the um, responses that are coming from the skiller in my right hand and then Dustin comes along and he speaks something in French am I right in thinking that the way you explained handling that would be that essentially when that utterance comes through in French the logic part that's sitting on my lap will understand via a token or something that that is French and then it will go away and pick out the translation in French in my right hand and then serve that through the skill exactly yeah so every every request has a locale string you know like the ISO uh, codes like IT-IT or EN-GB or EN dash uh, us right um and if you you know you can do this by hand there's libraries and there's sample code that that you can use to do this automatically but if you pick that locale and you structure your strings in a way that are grouped by this locale string then you can easily filter them and pick the right ones so yes exactly 
Yeah, but I would like to make a clarification here, which I think it's important. Uh, when you when you have a device, right? Suppose you have an Amazon Echo, you configure it for a specific language, okay? So when you when you onboard the device with the app, you basically tell the device, okay, you're going to be Spanish for Spain, or you're going to be English US, right? Now, if someone comes and speaks in a different language, right? the device is not going to understand. So right now we don't have uh, something dynamic to actually detect the local dynamically when you speak to a device that is not configured for your language. We don't have that yet, okay? So uh, basically the, the device is going to try to understand what you're saying. So put that the device is configured for, for Spanish, for Spain, and you speak in French, the device is going to try to understand that as if it were Spanish, okay? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you guys mentioned a couple of tools. You mentioned Jargon, who we uh, spoke with recently. I believe that podcast game is going to come out uh, right before this one, perhaps. And you also mentioned I eighteen Next as well. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times developers will, you know, vary their responses or maybe uh, provide escalating responses if someone's asking for something that's unavailable multiple times in a row. Is that possible to do with these localization uh, tooling as well? Absolutely. So uh, both of these support, uh, you know, like a random uh, picking from an array. So if, if instead of having a, a simple key value pair of this is the variable and this is what you should say if that variable is called, um, you can have this is the variable and this is an array of responses that, that you can use uh, to to address it. And those sentences can also have wildcards in them that you can then fill up or fill in uh, at execution time with whatever data you're, you're processing at that moment. So for example, if you have a string that says, oh, you have X number of coins, right? Uh, it would be very impractical to have a version of that string for every, for every number of coins, or it would be very impractical to have uh, you know, that sentence split up so that at execution time you can fill in it, you can concatenate them with, uh, with, with the value in the middle. So uh, these tools allow you to have strings with placeholders in them that then you can then fill in with values as you're running the backend code. Um, yeah, so yeah. it's definitely possible. And I've actually recently gotten a, t- a Twitter request of someone who wanted to use the localization uh, you know, method, but also have not just random picking from a, from an array, but also, as you said, escalating. So first I want to use this sentence. Then if something doesn't happen or this happens, then I want to use that sentence or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe a sorted array. And in that case, you can do it as well. So what I recommended that particular uh, developer to do is to augment the, um, the localization interceptor, and in his case, he was using I18 Next. So uh, basically, we're using the interceptor to uh, add a localization function at the request time, right? And create another one that instead of randomly picking from an array, instead goes through the array and picks the, the value based on a session attribute or based on a value in a database that, that, that the developer has stored. So for example, if you've accessed the skill 10 times, rather than say the first value of an array that's like, hey, welcome to this skill, blah, blah, blah. The 10th time it would be, hey, welcome back. Or welcome back again, wow, you've you come here a lot, right? Uh, and just tailor the, tailor the experience that way. 
Yeah, and on top of that, uh, these tools also allow you, or these libraries also allow you to define fallback mechanisms. So suppose that the, the there's an incoming request, you're trying to find a specific key for, for, for a phrase, right? And the key is not available, right? Suppose you run into that situation. You have fallback me mechanisms to actually, you know, pick something else. Uh, and that's good because uh, usually, for example, when I localize a uh, uh, a skill, uh, and I'm dealing with multiple uh, English uh, English locales. Suppose I have a skill that is for the English US and English UK. I only provide uh, a few strings that are uh, specific for the UK, right? Uh, in in my in my skills, a lot of them I can reuse because they're basically the same thing. So I can say that. Uh, the skill should use English in general, right? As, as a general family, use English and only use those specific uh, for the UK when the local is UK. You know, you can do, you can play with that, do stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's very, very flexible. Yeah. And and I'm sorry, and, and sorry I, I just wanted to complete the loop because we, we talked about, you know, just a simple translation, which unfortunately is not is not that simple. Um, and Kane was asking earlier, you know, what's the complete process? So I, I just wanted to close uh, the picture because, yes, you, you do translate on one hand, the, you know, the, the interaction model, then you extrapolate the strings and you put them on your other hand and you translate those. But what happens when you... Uh, make changes to your skill or what happens when things change. So the important thing to remember when you're localizing skills is when things change, you have to change it for every language and you have to keep adapting every language to those changes. So it's an ongoing process. Um, so it's very important to understand that because really when you're localizing your skills to, to another language, it's sort of like a responsibility you have, right? Uh, you, you can't just put it into the German skill store and then just keep focusing on the US one and then ignore ignore the German one. Because as you make changes, those changes have to be propagated also to the German store. Um, and uh, that's something that people underestimate, but you should definitely keep in mind that it's an ongoing process. Yeah, and I, and I have another step to, of the process, which is right in the end, which is not, uh, not obvious at all, but it becomes obvious once you have a successful successful skill uh, published, right? And what what usually happens is that when you have a skill that really works, you get feedback, right? And you get support requests, right? And suppose you have a localize your skills to your English US skill to Spanish, right? And and that skill becomes very successful successful in Spain. Maybe you start getting support requests or or or, or requests to basically uh, create new features etc in spanish right so you have to take care of, uh, take care of that and have that in mind that you will also get uh, a response from the people in the in this other uh, local or in this other country so if you do not have people to actually take care of that you are you're in trouble okay yeah <laughs> and last, uh, even last step. So it, so this is a competition on who can get the latest step. Uh, uh, I, I would say it's not necessarily the last step, but definitely something that you will realize as as Herman was saying, as, as you get more and more popular, you're going to have to manage a lot of different languages, a lot of different strings. And as you grow your content, those strings just keep growing, right? So you need to start finding ways of not just having a file that you personally edit every time you want to make a change, but of 
transitioning that file into perhaps a community sourced file, right? Mm -hmm. Using services like Crowdin or even Jargon has their own platform that allows you to, you know, source translations based on on your on your on your strings. Um, so finding methods of effectively uh, scaling, scaling, yeah, like yeah. delegating the translation, not just so that you have to do it yourself, but people can contribute uh, corrections, can contribute edits, can contribute uh, even other content, for example, right? So let's say you make an Airtable, uh, uh, I don't know how, how they call it, but an Airtable table, right? <laughs> and you, you, you can have like a, a table that's just for questions in that particular language. And you have a table where you can specify what the question is, what the correct answers are, sorry, what the, um, what the questions are and what the correct answer is, for example. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, is like a, 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 cross, a crossing of a spreadsheet and a database that you can access via API, just for clarification. Yeah, and, and you can have other people contribute in that language so you don't have to constantly depend on, on your translators to, you know, to just one-to-one -one adapt what's available in your source locale, right? You have content that grows organically into different locales without having to, to worry about having everything completely synchronized. Um, so those are various various considerations that yeah. are definitely challenging, but it's I, I think it's a great problem to have when you have to start thinking about, okay, how do I scale, right? Yeah, I, I don't have another one, so I think Andrea won this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well played, Andrea. Um, <laughs> uh, one step we didn't talk about uh, was testing. How how can developers, how can builders go about testing the different locales? We need another po podcast for that one. Okay. <laughs> I would say. But yes, there are, there are multiple ways in which you can test. We, we have multiple tools, both in the front-end side and on the back-end side. For example, uh, quite recently, we we launched uh, what we call the Autorans Profiler that allows you to test the voice interaction model alone without even hitting the back end. Okay, so you can start playing with those phrases and see how they map into intents, how you collect slots. Slots are the variables, you know, that are part of these utterances, etc. And you have to do a lot of work on the on the front end side, but then. Uh, there are excellent tools in the back end to actually create a kind of a stack for testing, you know, to do unit testing, etc. We have so, we have the simulation, uh, we, we have multiple tools. So yeah, let me maybe rephrase that a different way. Oh, what, are, what or are there any specific localization considerations when it comes to testing? Okay, yeah, so I mean, the biggest one is uh, is automation uh, because simply due to a uh, physical constraint, right? That you you can't rely on on yourself being able to test in every language that you're coding in, or that you're supporting, uh, and the devices that you have in, in your home are really only made to be conversed with, at least you know for now, in one specific language. So. Um, if if you start localizing skills and then you expect to have the same testing experience that you have at home where you can just talk to the device or write in the simulator, then you're going to have a hard time because not only is it very difficult to just continuously change languages of your physical device, but you also would need to manually type out everything in the developer console, for example, in every language that you're supporting. So being able to effectively automate the testing, I would say, is the key to success with 
with localization. And um, as Herman was mentioning, you know, we, we, we have tools for this. We have the Ask CLI that allows you to specify what locale you want to use and what sentence you want to use to test. And then you can use the incoming response of that test to check whether it fits certain criteria, therefore creating a sort of a unit test that, that you build for each language. And then every time you make a change, you just run the series of tests and boom, you know, you you see if it's if if there's if there's a regression or if there's a new yeah. issue that 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 comes up. Yeah. Did that answer your question, Dustin? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think automation is key there. I mean, I totally agree with with Andrea, because if you think about the alternative, it's, it's just not doable. Uh, we have people. Uh, I've seen people testing uh, skills in a in a language that they do not know, right? Uh, just typing uh, strings in maybe in German uh, in some in some web service where the service would output you know uh, the spoken spoken uh, MP3 right and they would play it to to the echo so they could actually launch the skill you know pass an utterance etc which is just crazy right so you don't <laughs> want to go into that no. That does sound mental. Well, guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Sorry it's taken up a little bit more of your time than it was supposed to, but it's been an absolute joy listening to, to all of this discussion and being a part of this discussion. I think that I was... I was I knew that we would cover stuff that we that wasn't on the radar, and I think we've done exactly that. And I think that the explanation of how to go about translating Alexa skills from beginning to end and all of the technical considerations has been absolutely immense. So thank you so much for joining us, chaps. Where can people? I'll I'll put the links to um to the blog post from yourself, Andrea, on how to localize your Alexa skills. I'll also link to the videos on YouTube and Twitch and the GitHub Alexa repository. Where else can, can people go to to either learn more about this or to to kind of follow what you guys are doing at Amazon Alexa? I would say the the three. Twitter channels to follow is at Alexa Devs, uh, where you're you you can stay up to date with you know the latest features because we keep we we keep rolling out new ones, and uh, our personal uh, Twitter accounts that you can use as help, advice, or general questions. My DMs are open, or you can tweet me um, at Mutoni A and Herman. Uh, what's your Twitter account, Herman? Herman Biscuso. Herman Viscuso yeah. uh, and Kane, may maybe you, you can share th those as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, any way that you can reach out to us is, is great. And if you have specific technical questions, you can also write it in the forums. So alexa.design slash forums, which is maintained by our developer advocacy group who, you know, check the forums and, mm -hmm. and, and try to provide support. And uh, if you have a specific issue that you want, like a one-to-one -one help with, and you don't want to post it in the forums, then you can also contact us officially uh, using alexa.design slash contact us. Yeah. Also, if I might add, uh, I think uh, that some some of the guys listening might, might want to check uh, the source code of the specific skills that have been localized using some of the techniques we described here. So if you guys want to check that, you should go to github.com slash Alexa, where there are multiple skills there that are using distinct techniques and are being localized. Yeah, I would say that the, the top two, because they're also simple, mm -hmm. is the fact skill and the how-to skill. Those mm -hmm. both use the 
uh, I18 Next version. And I know that Jargon have also uh, kind of ported those same samples into jargonized versions. So if you're trying to compare the two, feel free to check out, you know, their versions. I'm, I'm sure if you go on jargon.com, you'll you'll find links to them. Um, and yeah, in general, uh, we're here to help. So any way that we can help, please feel free to reach out and uh, yeah. we'll try our best. And, and we really like to talk about this stuff. So Kane, thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. Thank you both for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Andrea, Herman, thank you so much. That was Andrea Mutoni and Herman Viscuso. Wow, that was epic. <laughs> Absolutely over the moon to have those chaps along to discuss this topic. It's a topic that whenever we've done a podcast that touches on this, we did one with Mike at the Fuhr, we did one with Jargon, and every single time it resonates and people are always reaching out and getting in touch and saying how valuable that content is. Because, you know... The Echoes are on sale in over 40 different countries. How many different languages does the world speak? It's it's absolutely unbelievable. I know there's, you know, looking at the stats and, and how much you can believe, I don't know, but looking at the stats, it, it would seem as though the vast majority of skills at the moment are in US English or UK English. And, you know, Germany, huge market over in Germany. Uh, as, uh, there's a huge voice scene over there. Same for Spain, same for France. Um, the Netherlands, Holland, it's starting to really, really grow over there. Australia, as Andrea mentioned, you know, there's, there is so much potential for developers, designers and brands to localise their voice experiences and capitalise and tap into current untapped market. Well, I say untapped, it's not actually untapped. It's all going on, it's all happening. So the sooner you can kind of do it, the better it'll be. Um, really, really like the way that Andrea explained the process of going through the translation situation because, and there's a rhyme for you as well, um, because I finally kind of get it now. When we spoke to Jargon, I got the Jargon tool and I got what Jargon are all about and how they help. And I got the concept of separating content from code. But I think that what I finally did today was manage to visualize it in my head. And I, I think the example I give was having the utterances and the user spoken utterances in your left hand and translating those so that you've got everything that goes into the skill translated. And then you've got the logic sitting on your lap and the logic has got all of your responses in it. You then take those responses, the strings as Andrea was calling it and Haman were calling it, the, so the English strings for example, and you move those into your right hand and then you translate that over there. So you essentially it's like a, a funnel going down and then a funnel coming back out again that's the way i'll kind of visualize it maybe the cover image for this will be that funnel um so it, it's it, i finally got it create straight in my mind and, and it doesn't i know that they were saying that it can be quite complex and it might be quite complex but in terms of the principles and the process to follow i think they explained it in a really simple form it sounds as though it's, it's doable I, I don't think it sounds out of um you know out of anybody's stretch of the imagination so to speak so yeah, it's a good, that's a good way of explaining it. So thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Haman. Thank you, Dustin, as always. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you all for listening. Until next time, see you later.